0: With week five of our skeptical series, and we're asking the question, Aren't all religions equal? That's a question that's been asked and become more prominent over the years. Can't we all just believe in our God and you believe in your God? And as long as we're not being oppressive or hurtful or mean or hurting each other, don't we all end up in the same place? Isn't that the idea? The reason why I showed that clip from Conrad Mabuewe is to highlight that Christianity believes unique things that are unique to Christianity. And to suggest that all roads eventually lead to God, in the end, Stephen Prothero, who I will quote in just a few minutes again, would suggest that's very unethical. And at the same time, just flat out wrong. Because inherent inside of religions, all religions, are problems and solutions to those problems. And Christianity has a unique answer to what the problem is and to what the solution is. And so tonight, what I hope that we can do in our time together is walk away with at least the understanding of why Christianity is unique, and then maybe in the Q&A session, we'll be able to tackle some specific other religions and maybe uh, your questions there. The reason why I want to start and begin with Christianity is I toyed with the idea of Uh, presenting a case based and comparing different religions. The only problem is at some point you have to exclude some that some people would say are in, others would say are out. We generally agree that there are about eight major world religions, and all eight of those major world religions make major exclusive claims about themselves. So the answer to the question is no. All religions aren't equal. Worshiping your God and me worshiping my God is not going to ultimately end up with us at the same location. So what do we do for 35 minutes? Do we just leave the answer there? And we all skip merrily down the road. Some would suggest, sure, I would suggest that's a waste of our time. To simply walk away and just say, well, it's unethical and wrong is troublesome. So what makes Christianity unique? That's essentially what I hope to show you tonight, is what makes Christianity unique. But before we go any further, the reason why I like to quote Stephen Prothero is because he is um, a religion professor at Boston University who's not a committed evangelical. So he's not one of my guys, if you would put it that way. He's not somebody that would sway you necessarily to become a Christ follower, And he says the idea of religious tolerance has morphed into the straight jacket of religious agreement. In other words, we have to all respect each other. We all have to respect what each other believes. But in the end, that is frustrating. And you say, why, David, do you think that that's frustrating? Well, it's frustrating because each individual religion makes its own unique claims. And so I want to show you tonight... What are, I believe, three major claims that Christianity makes that provide for not only its uniqueness, but its compellingness as being the only true and right religion. I know some of you balk at that language because, you know, one of the things that Christians really like to throw around is this idea that Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. And that's true. Until you compare it with other religions and you find out that Christianity is in fact a religion. And we shouldn't be ashamed to admit that we have a religious dogma and creeds and things that we follow. But there's uniqueness to why we believe those to be true and others to be false. And so what I want to do is I want to take you through a biblical argument. I've always told you five weeks in, I'm going to do the best that I possibly can to show you from the Bible... Why Christians believe what they believe. Because ultimately, if we come in here, we sit and we have a conversation, and you leave unconvinced by me, that's a problem. But if you leave unconvinced by the Bible, that's not a problem. Because I shouldn't be the one who's trying to convince you that I'm right. The Word of God, which has convinced me that Christianity is right, and that Jesus Christ is who He says He is, and the the truth claims that are made in there, that's what's convinced me to stand on a stage and proclaim to you, What is convincing? This is not David Botts' argument for why you should be a Christian. If we're going to do that, you all might as well leave, or I should have at least charged some money for people to get in the door. Which you may chuckle at, but I mean, that happens, and I guess I could make some money on the side. The problem, though, and the reason why we don't charge at the door is because ultimately the message that I'm going to deliver to you tonight, the words that I'm going to speak to you tonight are found in Scripture, and that's actually where we're going to start. We're going to start with what does what do Christians believe about the Bible, and so if you have a Bible, if you brought it with you, I invite you to go to the book of 2 Timothy. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there should be one in the seat in front of you, and if this is your first time maybe even reading a bible or being in a church setting you can flip that bible open to page 826 and you'll be right with us i just want to just say as you if this is your first time with us we're so glad that you're you chose to spend time with us just know that we're going to constantly refer to scripture that's what motivates us and moves us along it's what gives us how we are to understand life so when you get to Page 826, if you're wondering where we're at, the big number is the chapter, the small number is the verse. And you say, David, I just want to know what Scripture has to say about the Bible. The Bible speaks to its own truthfulness. Look, if you will, at verse 16. We're going to read 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We read here from the Apostle Paul as he writes to his young protege in the ministry, Timothy, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Here's what Christians believe about their holy book. Because Many major world religions have what they consider to be their holy books. Christians believe that the Bible is inspired by God. That is, that the work of the Holy Spirit is what enables the human authors of the Bible to what to record what God desired to have written in these scriptures. That it is inspired by God. And... and this idea that God has communicated through these uh, authors, that he has theos pneumatos is the Greek. He has literally breathed it out through these human authors. You say, what's theos pneumatos? It means God breathed in the original Greek language that the Bible was composed in. Sorry, sometimes I just trick out and I just say things that I know, and then I, don't, I realize that not everybody knows what I'm talking about. These are literal words that are God-breathed to the human authors. And, and w- so what Christians believe is that the Bible is inspired, but not just that it's inspired, because I'm going to return to that in a moment. They also believe that it's, to use a theological term, inerrant, without error. It contains no errors. That the original autographs, the Greek Hebrew and Aramaic manuscripts that we understand the Bible to be are containing no error. This is a bold and audacious claim that Christians make that many other religions do not make. But I would argue this is what makes Christianity unique because they believe that the Bible is not only the God-breathed words, but they contain no error from him. Paul Feinberg is helpful here. He says, inerrancy means that when all facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted will be shown to be wholly true in everything that they affirm, whether that has to do with, the doctrine, with doctrine or morality or with the social, physical, or life sciences. This is a claim that Christians have made for centuries. This book contains no Errors. It is completely inerrant. This is unique. Say, how so? Well, we take, for instance, and this is why we have to go back to our question of aren't all religions equal? We can all just equally get there. Let's just do a a popular, budding, growing religion. You may have heard of it Islam. And their holy book, the Quran, makes startling claims about Jesus that he isn't the son of God, that he was just a prophet, that he has no divine authority. When we deal with the issue of holy books, immediately the two arguably major world religions of Islam and Christianity immediately crash into each other. One claims Jesus as the divine son of God, other Claims him to be nothing more than a prophet. So they can't lead to the same place because of what they build off of. But also, Christians believe this traditionally about Scripture. Not only is it inspired, not only does it contain no error, but we also believe that it is completely sufficient. Meaning that it is able, as the Scriptures say, that it's verse 16 is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible argues that the book of Scripture will handle every problem that the Christ follower will face and handles it sufficiently, how to deal with it. You say, that can't be true. The, bi- the biblical authors have no idea of certain things. And I already know some of the questions, the types of questions that will be asked in a QA. and a The Bible doesn't address certain social problems or doesn't deal with an ethical problem that we maybe have. How can you say that the Bible is sufficient for all of those things? Because the principles that are found inside of Scripture make it so applied and deal with that problem. We make an audacious claim about scripture and the research is there to back it up. It's interesting, you may have heard of it the a few uh, months ago, uh, we've developed the technology to be able to scan a scroll that previously we would not have been able to touch lest it burst into dust. So they found a Levitical scroll that dates centuries upon centuries old. They brought in the modern technology to be able to scan this document, this scroll of Leviticus, and upon the scan of that discovered that what was in that scroll matched what we currently have in our Hebrew Bibles letter for letter doesn't get a lot of press play, because in a world that constantly wants to attack the Bible, when the Bible verifies its truthfulness, it doesn't exactly get the cover of the Wall Street Journal and New York Times. But make no mistake, the Bible historically has defended itself against all modern and postmodern. In fact, it's interesting if you do just a literary study of what's happened with the Bible over the last uh, few centuries. It's the number one best-selling book, and it's the number one book that's been tried to be burned and destroyed, and yet it still manages to survive. Which is what theologians often refer to as the doctrine of preservation, that God not only has inspired it, And has protected it so that it would contain no error and that it is sufficient to deal with all the problems of humanity. But God in his providence and in his care for humanity has managed to keep the Bible from being run out of print. In fact, brought along a man named William Tyndale who would actually print the Bible into English and make it available for the common man. And Tyndale would ultimately lose his life for that exercise. So what Christians believe about the Bible uniquely is different than what other major world religions claim. In fact, some other major world religions don't have the same level of confidence in their holy books, believing them only to be merely suggestions, guides, or great myths to help us Kind of get back. And in fact, well, we'll get to it in a second. In fact, our Buddhist friends would suggest you don't even need a holy book. The problem is meditation, and the Bible's not going to help with that. Which leads us to our second unique characteristic, and that's the problem of humanity. See, everybody knows that something's wrong. The argument is over why it's wrong and how to fix it. In fact, C.S. Lewis famously said that there are two things that are innate in every human being. One, that they know that there's a way that they should live. And two, that they're pretty sure that nobody is living the way that they should live. Those two things are innate inside of humanity. Uh, I spent time with you today. You could probably point out to me all the different ways you're positive that somebody isn't living the way that they should. I could have driven with you to church and probably figured out uh, who wasn't. If uh, you've driven in Springfield, it's a perfect illustration of there are lots of people who don't know how to live the right way. and They just do all kinds of crazy stuff. It's a dangerous world out there. Go to other cities, everybody knows how to drive. You come to Springfield, it's like, hey, what? A car? Cool. <laughs> I've never seen one of these before. But Lewis argues that everybody knows that there is something wrong or there's a way that people are supposed to live, but they do Also agree that no one is living the way that they should. So again, we're going to look at the theological argument here. Romans chapter five, if you would turn over there, if you're keeping along with our Bible from uh, inside the sanctuary here, it's on page seven hundred eighty four. Christians offer their answer for the problem of humanity. And here's, again, an answer to the question. I just am trying to compare slightly with other religions as we go along. But um, I had the privilege last week of spending some time with a student. We went to Missouri State to listen to a panel on uh, religious communities. Are they divisive or are they helpful and unifying. It was an interesting panel, had different people from different perspectives, but one of the people that they had flown in for this particular conference at Missouri State was a Buddhist monk. And I've got to be honest with you, up until um, that day, I had never been in the same room with a Buddhist monk, so I felt like I had really accomplished something. And as I'm listening to these problems, they're answering the question of the problem of religion as being so divisive. And I'm not paraphrasing. I don't want to misquote anyone. In fact, if that Buddhist monk were to walk through the door, I would want him to know that I am representing him accurately and truthfully. When dealing with a problem of sin or dealing with a problem of just other people, the Buddhist response, and there's a student sitting in the room that was with me that can verify that this is what was said. The problem is you and me and our pettiness. So when someone gets on your nerves, the problem is not with the person who gets on your nerves. The problem is with you. So if I'm getting on your nerves right now, I feel if I'm a Buddhist, I'm like, get over yourself. You chuckle, but this is legitimate. I'm not joking. He verbatim said, the problem is your pettiness. If something bothers you, it's your fault. So fix it. That's what the solution to the problem is. So you get cut off in traffic and you're bothered by that. It's your fault. Someone steals your car. Get over it. It's not your it's your fault that your car got stolen. You don't like something in society. Get over it. Quit being so petty. Petty. That's the Buddhist answer to the problem of you and me. The Bible, however, paints a much different picture of the problem. Again, why I showed Conrad, because he helps us to see what the problem is. The problem is actually not that someone else is aggravating you and you need to get over it. The problem is that innately inside each and every one of us, there's a sin condition that infects us from the inside, and it leads out Romans chapter 5 beginning in verse number 12. The Apostle Paul writes here to um, the Romans and tells them and reminds them of this. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin, for until the law of sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law, nevertheless death "...reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation." But the free gift, which came from many offenses, resulted in justification. And you may be reading this and saying, David, what is the Apostle Paul saying? The Apostle Paul is saying that in the beginning, death enters through one man, Adam. We look at Genesis 3, and we understand that death passes through Adam, that through Adam, all men are condemned. You say, well, I wasn't there. It's not my fault. If I had been there, I'm a strong, independent woman. I don't need no man to tell me to not eat the fruit. I wouldn't have eaten a fruit. And the hillbilly guys would be cursed. If you're the guy, you're like, Psh, who needs women? You need Fortnite. You need pizza. I don't I don't need that in my life. She would turn to me and say, eat. And I would have been like, no thanks. There's plenty of trees in the garden. I listened. The problem with that is you wouldn't have. Not on your best day and your best moment. In your best life. If you believe in reincarnation. You wouldn't. Ever. You always would have. Chosen. Because here's what we forget. The issue of eating the fruit. Is not an issue over. Organic fruit consumption. It's over rebellion against what an almighty God said was right and wrong. And the desire to be. God, so remember the serpent says to Adam and Eve, you will be like God, that sounds pretty good, but that's the root problem of all of sin, is that you and I want to play God and Apostle Paul answers the question of what is wrong with humanity what is wrong with humanity is sin has entered into the world and it has cursed all of humanity it's infected all of humanity you say that's not fair I wasn't there we understand this principle you don't have to actually be the one committing an offense to be punished for it we've all played on sports teams that had to run extra sprints because somebody decided that they didn't want to hustle. It didn't end well for that guy in the locker room afterwards. We've all been punished because one person wouldn't stop talking in the classroom. The teacher's like, well, that's it. I can't control one of you. I will control all of you. No recess. And you're like, are you serious? Later at the lunch table, that kid came back was no more. (laughs) Where'd Johnny go? Don't know. I can guarantee you this, we're getting all three recess periods the rest of the week. We understand and recognize the results of one person committing an offense and everyone else being penalized as a result of it. And that's what the Apostle Paul argues here. See, this is what is unique about Christianity. It's not that We are kind of good, but a little bit messed up, and we need to kind of work our way out of being so bad. But rather that you and I, yes, even the pastor, even all of the pastoral staff, especially some of the pastoral staff, struggle with sin and are infected by it. That's the problem of humanity. Some religions would like you to believe that the problem of humanity is suffering. But really, if you go back to Genesis 3, you understand the consequence of sin is pain and suffering. The problem, the root, the issue that affects you and me, not only affects but infects you and me is sin. And so the Apostle Paul makes a startling claim in verse 16. Or verse, excuse me, verse 17. For if by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who received abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Therefore, as th- through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, The free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. This is the crux of the argument here. I want you to see this. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, Even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's the argument from the Apostle Paul. Through Adam, sin. Through Christ, forgiveness of sin. The problem is sin. The solution is Jesus Christ. This is the audacious claim that the Bible makes. That you and I and all of humanity are cursed. We are infected. We are affected. We reap the effects. Effects of sin. Affect, effect, and infect. All of it. The three key words that we experience as a result of sin. But that Jesus Christ serves as the solution to that problem. And this is where we run into our third problem for tonight Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is where we run into the biggest problem because here's the argument. Some religions believe that he was a prophet. Some religions believe that he was a good teacher role model. Some religions believe that he existed, but we're not really sure who he was. The Bible, however, makes a claim about who Jesus is. So our last area that we're going to look at is found in the book of Luke. I want to take you to Luke. Luke is one of four gospel writers. He's uh, one of three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that uh, together share similar understandings of who Jesus is. And then you have John, who's the fourth eyewitness, who functions differently because of his role and relationship with Jesus Christ. But all four gospels speak of the person of Jesus Christ. I go to Luke because I think... In a group like this, Luke is the witness that we would be most intrigued to understand. Mark's a fast hitter. He moves from point to point to point. John is tight with Jesus, so of course he's going to make him look good. And Matthew, we're not really sure. We're just happy that he wrote a gospel, but I mean, let's be honest. If there's anybody in the faith community that we're going to hold up as probably the most credible witness, it's going to be the doctor. It's going to be the doctor. He's the one that we're going to trust. He's a licensed medical professional. So he can speak to these strange phenomenons. So I want to take you to the doctor. I want to see what the good doctor says about Jesus. I want to pull up a chair to Luke and say, Okay, Doc, we get what the other guys say, but you're the rational thinker. That's what we would say if Luke was in the room, if we're a skeptic. If we're a skeptic, and I, I get it, I want to be clear tonight. I understand why you would be skeptical of Christianity. And so I've taken you to who I believe is would be the most respected in the community of our current day to answer that question. So let's see what Luke tells us about Jesus. I want to begin in Luke chapter 1 tonight. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. I think it's key and worthwhile to remind you that Luke is the author here, that God is communicating through Luke, but he's also allowing Luke's personality to be at play here. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David the virgin's name was Mary and having come in the angel said to her rejoice highly favored one the lord is with you blessed are you among women but when she saw him she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was now let's just time out for all the christians in the room that are like yeah this is a regular occurrence an angel showing up in your living room is not a normal occurrence And a lot of times, we really church up angels. We like, they're the little kids in the Christmas pageant who come out with the little halos and the little wings, and then everybody's like, oh, they're so cute. Angels aren't cute. If an angel showed up here, everybody would wet themselves. (laughs) I have to mass order some new drawers for everybody. Because angels aren't cute little three-year-olds. I don't know that anybody thinks that. But we also we like equate cherubs to angels, and they're like the happy people shooting people with darts for Valentine's Day. Angels in the Bible are terrifying. Here this angel shows up. This is what Luke writes. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Okay fearful angel in my room and behold you will conceive in your womb and bring forth the son and you shall call his name Jesus he will be great and he will be called the son of the highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end And everybody reads this and is like yes he's coming there's only one problem and Mary is quick to point it out Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I do not know a man? In other words, I've never slept with a man. How is this possibly going to happen? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month of her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You say, Deva, why do you start here? Because we have a lot of historians who will affirm the historical Jesus. You'll ask people, Do you believe in Jesus? And they will tell you yes. And then I followed up with, Do you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? And they'll say, Of course not believes in that fairy tale stuff? See, the key is not just that Jesus is who he says he is, but how he gets here is of the utmost importance. Because if he comes through the seed of a man and not through God, he can't be the one who can undo what Adam has done, because he'll be exactly like Adam. This is an audacious claim that Christians make that no other religion not only is he the son of God, but that he was born of a virgin. You say, did they really believe that? Yeah, Look, flip over to chapter 2. So I know it's not Christmas Eve, and I know that I'm breaking some of your family traditions, but Luke chapter 2 says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place when, while Cyrenius was governor of Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was while uh, that while they were there. Sorry, I've read this story probably 300 times in King James because I'm the oldest kid in our family. So tripping over my words here. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Here's what Luke is saying. Not only is Jesus born of a virgin, but he's uh, Joseph's in Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. He's born in Bethlehem. You go, who cares? The Old Testament does. See, here's the other thing that becomes interesting as we compare. Not only do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, not only do we believe that he was born of a virgin, but we also believe that he was born of a virgin in Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy, and the person and work of Jesus Christ fulfills hundreds of Old Testament prophecies about who he was. This is not just a mere chance birth of a little baby that's laid in a manger in an inn. It's not happenstance. But it's not just his birth that is the issue here. Flip over to chapter 23. People will tell you, I affirm the life of Jesus Christ, that he was a good teacher, he was a good role model had some great things to say about how we should live. The only problem is that the Bible makes a more startling claim about who Jesus is. Verse 32 of chapter 23. There were also two other criminals led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary... They crucified him, referring to Jesus, and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots, and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ that's chosen of God." The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. Just in case there was anybody who didn't understand what is going on. They provided it in three different languages. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged, blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. startling claim is made about who Jesus is. He's mocked by the crowds that have come to crucify him. And as he's hanging on the cross, two criminals on either side, one mocks and the other says, Don't you even get it, bro? This guy did nothing wrong. We're receiving what we should receive. What humility and co- cogent thinking taking place in your final hours to say, I'm getting what I deserve. This man does not. And he makes a startling claim in verse 42. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. So even in his crucifixion moment, Jesus is declaring that someone has come to know him and is saved by him. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And so from saying that a man was saved, that he would receive eternal life, Jesus now died. C.S. Lewis famously says, here's the trilemma, here's the dilemma. It's not a dilemma because a dilemma has one versus the other. There's a trilemma because here's the problem. Jesus is either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he's Lord. You say, we died. This is the most startling claim. Chapter 24. Been dead. We roll three days later. Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again, and they remembered his words. Oh, yeah. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Here's the most startling truth claim that Christians... Christians and Christianity makes that not only was Jesus the very son of God not only did Jesus claim that to give people eternal life not only did he die but that 3 days later he rose again and he's still living. And this is the most startling truth claim because I can take you today to the tomb of Joseph Smith. I can take you to the tomb of every great Catholic saint that has ever lived. I can take you to the tomb of Buddha. I could take you to the tomb of Mahatma Gandhi. I could take you to the tomb of every great religious leader. But I can't take you to the tomb of Jesus. Actually, I could. It's just empty. That's the most startling claim that's why you can't say that all religions are equal. Because unlike every other major world religion, we can go to visit their dead prophet's tomb. We can exhume their bodies and find the particles that remain and prove that life has been buried. To you tonight, based on the evidence from the scriptures themselves, that the number one greatest need you have is to bow your knee and submit and, uh, and become a follower of Jesus Christ. To let Him rule and reign like He does right now. Hebrews tells us that we have a great high priest, if we're a Christ follower, who sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. That person is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the greatest high priest. Greater than that of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. He is reigning and ruling. I wonder tonight, do you know him? Do you know him? Because the Bible invites you to know him. And to have a relationship with him few moments, we're going to sing a response to what we've heard. I want to tell you tonight that if you're a person sitting in here who has never come to know Jesus Christ for who the Bible claims him to be and the fact of who he is, tonight you can experience new life in Jesus Christ by admitting that you, just like me, are a sinner, by believing in the person and work of Jesus Christ, that he was who he says he was, but not only that he was, but that he is who he says he is. And by confessing your need for him and submitting to him, putting your faith and trust in him and him alone. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to the Crave College Ministry Sermons from Crossway Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. For more information about Crave, you can connect with us online at crosswaybc.org forward slash college or on social media at Crossway Crave. Again, thanks for listening, and we hope you have a great day.